Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 22. A couple quick items here, real quick, if we could. Um, just a reminder, we have numerous small groups meeting. Our small group started here this week. I believe we have four small groups meeting today. There's a, a little half sheet of paper back on the back table. Feel free to grab one of those. We prayerfully have you encouraged to possibly look into those. Two of the groups meeting today, I believe, are marriage groups, and the other two are going through Ephesians. Only information is back on the back table there on that half sheet of paper. If you're interested in one of those small groups and you don't recognize the host, host name, let us know and point you in the right direction with that as well. So Acts chapter 22, continue our study here through the book of Acts, and let's do the smart thing. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, good to be here this morning. Thank you for that time of worship. Thank you for the time just to come together as one, as a body of Christ, and to really learn of you. And we just pray over this next time frame here, let your spirit lead. You teach, we listen, and let your word guide and direct in all ways and all things. In your name, amen. Real quick background, we're in Paul's life talking about him coming back to Jerusalem. Over the last couple weeks, we've talked about how it was prophesied that Paul was going to come to Jerusalem and be put in chains. So Paul knew this was coming. As he came to Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and as he went into the temple, the Jews kind of rioted against him. Because they thought Paul was bringing a Gentile into the temple. Now, you have to remember from a Jewish perspective, a Gentile is anybody who is not Jewish. So for a Gentile to come into the Jewish temple, that's a big deal. So they rioted against Paul so bad that the Roman soldiers had to come out and basically arrest Paul to say, what's going on here? Paul says, would you give me an opportunity to talk to the Jews to explain? So that's what we left off last week, is Paul gave this great message of how he got saved and about how Jesus came to be the Messiah. And the Jews were listening to this. They were really paying attention until verse 21. Then he, meaning Jesus, said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. That word, Gentiles, verse 22. And they listened to him until this word, Gentiles. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes, they threw dust into the air. One commentator said they threw dust in the air because they couldn't find any stones to stone them. They were just that angry, that upset, that this man would listen and say this idea of Gentiles getting saved. You have to remember this. Now, from our perspective, this doesn't sound like that big a deal. We're Gentiles. This idea of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, that's actually a good thing. From a Jewish perspective, especially 2,000 years ago, the idea that God would care about the Gentiles, that was so difficult for them to accept and believe. So they were just furious at this, verse 24. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Now, that's a great police tactic right there. Let's just beat and torture you until you tell us what's going on. You have to understand what scourging is. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because we don't want to make this into a shock message. But scourging was a whip with numerous whip ends at the end. And what would happen is they put little pieces of bone or metal at the end of it. And so they would take the man, tie him up, put him over a piece of wood, and they would whip his back. And every time they whipped his back, that bone and metal would go into the flesh, and you can imagine what would happen. It was an awful, horrible thing. Many people died from the scourging alone. But they didn't know what was going on. Remember, Paul was speaking to the Jews in Hebrew. We assume that these Roman soldiers did not speak Hebrew. They only spoke Greek. They just see this riot happening. They don't know what's going on. Hey, let's just take this guy back, and let's just get to the bottom of this. The way we're going to get to the bottom of this is let's just start torturing him, and he'll tell us what's going on. Verse 25, as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. 
And then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained the citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. A little bit of background here, and then we're going to get to our spiritual points. Being a Roman was a big deal. If you're a Roman citizen, you were not allowed to be uh, put in cuffs or bound until you were found guilty. So they already broke the law. Now, this kind of conversation here of I was born a Roman or I bought my Roman citizenship, if you were born a Roman, actually born from Roman parents, your citizenship carried more weight. It was more valued. But back during this time, you could buy a Roman citizenship, or maybe more eloquently put, you could bribe somebody to get a Roman citizenship. And that was still considered Roman, but it was a lower-class Roman citizen. So by Paul saying he's a Roman, and not only a Roman, but a Roman citizen born a Roman, this is a big deal. These guys have broke a lot of rules. Now the question comes up, why not just say you're a Roman? Verse 27, it just gets you out of everything. Well, history tells us that if you claimed to be a Roman citizen and you were not, the penalty was you could be put to death. That's how big a deal this was. So for somebody to claim they're a Roman citizen and not be a Roman citizen, the penalty could be death. So why would they think Paul's a Roman? He's speaking Hebrew, he looks Jewish, he acts Jewish, but he was a Roman citizen. So this completely changes everything. So now the Roman soldiers don't know what to do, so what they decide to do is let's get the Jews that are angry at Paul, let's get everybody in the same room, and let's figure out what's going to happen. Verse 30, the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. That's a good refrigerator verse right there. I told the 830 service, you don't see that verse on too many Christian t-shirts, do you? God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you should not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Can you go with me real quick to Titus chapter 3? Titus chapter 3. Paul is before the Sanhedrin. Paul says, I didn't do anything wrong. High priest says, smack him for that. So they hit Paul. Paul basically says, you hypocrite, why are you hitting me? According to the law, you can't do this. They come back and they say, would you speak evil of the high priest? And Paul says, I'm wrong. I apologize, I didn't know he was the high priest. What an interesting little conversation there. Titus, please. Titus 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Let's read that one more time. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Aren't you glad that these verses are no longer applicable to us? I got saved in 1993. 1993, Bill Clinton was president. I was a young kid. I was uh, 1993. I was 16 at the time when I got saved. So here I am. I'm excited about Jesus. I'm excited about church. I'm coming into church, and we're talking about the Lord. And I hear all these people that I love and I respect say the most evil things about Bill Clinton. And, I, and I'm thinking, I'm not real smart, but I'm not real dumb. 
I'm pretty sure the Bible says we're not supposed to do that. And about every four years where there's a presidential election, I see these people that love Jesus all of a sudden become hateful, vengeful people. And what happens every four years that we're all going to pick some guy, and this one guy is going to completely change the country. We're going to throw all of our support behind this one guy, and this one guy we either win or lose, and we'll decide from there. But the other guy, we're just going to speak evil of them because they're obviously not what we like. Now, here's the problem with this. Verse 2, speak evil of no one. For some reason, we feel as believers that we're allowed to speak evil of somebody when they are constantly doing something that goes against God's word or law. Now, let me say this for full disclosure. I believe as a believer, we have every right and obligation to speak truth, and we have a right and obligation to call out sin, and we have a right and obligation to say that something is unchristlike. I, I believe we do. But I can't say for you, but I know in my heart, I know when that right and obligation becomes sin and I start speaking evil of somebody. There's alliance crossed in my mind and I realize, okay, I just went from taking a stand for truth now to attacking a person. There's a, a Christian talk radio station that I get in my car and every now and then I flip over to it and sometimes it just infuriates me. And it infuriates me sometimes because of the stuff they're saying. It's like, my goodness, that is just so awful. But then sometimes it infuriates me because I see these people as Christians and the words that come out of their mouth towards certain government officials. It is unchristlike. And I remember when Obama got elected and I heard some of these believers say awful things about wanting him to die and all. Speak evil of no one. Now, some of you may not agree with me on that. And, and I don't care you're wrong. That's okay. That's your fault. You know, if you want to be wrong. But, but please hear me out because I don't want you to walk out of this message saying, well, we can't say anything. I didn't say that. We can't speak evil. We can take a stand for truth. We can take a stand for morals. We can take a stand for biblical principles. And we can take a stand saying that person's opinion does not line up with Scripture. We have an obligation. But we know in our heart where it crosses a line to speak evil. And we've got to be careful about that. Now, let's go one step further. You don't have to go there, but in James 4, verse 11, it says, Do not speak evil of one another. See, we go from do not speak evil of officials to now do not speak evil of anybody. Anybody. Do you realize how often as a Christian we break that rule? And we break that rule because we think it's okay. And we have all these little phrases that we say, well, I'm really not speaking evil, I'm just saying it like it is, or I'm just calling it out for what they do. No, there's a line where it's crossed. There's no problem with us saying that action, once again, is sinful, it's unchristlike, that's not proper. But we know where it crosses a line in our spirit and there's an evilness that's coming out of our mouth. Remember what the Bible says. It says that your words reveal your heart. Luke chapter 6, your words reveal your heart. And when you talk to people, and when I see somebody speak ill and evil of another person, that is a window right into your heart. And when I hear those words come out of your mouth, that is a window right into your heart. Speak evil of no one. And that includes your spouse. And it includes your spouse both ways. Number one, don't speak evil of your spouse. I don't know where we've come to this idea that since we're married and we're one flesh, that gives me the right to say whatever I want about my spouse. No, speak evil of no one. Or number two, that I can say to my wife things I would not say to other people. Because that, that doesn't count. 
See, I would never speak evil of anybody publicly, and I would never speak evil of anybody in small groups. But if it's just me and my wife, well, then, hey, we can say whatever we want, right? No. That's still speaking evil of somebody. And I've noticed sometimes, and I say this jokingly, not to pick on my wife or my wife to pick on me, sometimes Dawn and I should not be around each other. Because we have a tendency to say, well, you know what they did. Well, you know what they did. You know what? And next thing you know, it's just us. And then we show up at Sunday and say, Jesus loves you. But then we got to be careful what we're saying in the kitchen of our own house. Now, let's go one step further. Speak evil of no one in your mind. So fine, you don't say anything publicly. You don't say anything in small groups. You don't say anything to your spouse. Don't even think it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians says. Speak evil of no one. Jesus is a good example. He spoke truth. He spoke honestly. He spoke sincerely. But he also spoke lovingly. Speak evil of no one. Please go with me to uh, Romans chapter 12. Well, what are we supposed to say then? Right? Didn't your mom teach you if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all? You know how often we do that as Christians? I've heard people out here say it. I've probably even said it myself. Well, you know what? The Bible says I shouldn't say anything bad, so I'm just not going to say anything at all. And what are you really saying by saying that? You're really wanting the group to know that you have an opinion on that subject, but you are so holy and spiritual that you caught yourself, and you didn't say anything. It's like, well, you know what? Nope. Nope. I just heard Pastor James say something. I'm not going to say anything. And then we're supposed to walk away saying, oh, my goodness, you're so spiritual. Really, you just want us to know that you're just not happy. How would it be if you would have a conversation with somebody, and you would walk away from that conversation, and that people would not know that you ever thought evil about that other person? Never even know. Because you wouldn't even hint it. Well, then what am I supposed to say about this despicable person? Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Bless the person. That word bless in verse 14 is where we get our English word eulogize. For a eulogy, where you only say good things. So there's somebody you can't stand. Government leader, just pray for them. If their name comes up in conversation, you know, I pray for that person on a regular basis. I pray they have a blessed day. Somebody you can't stand at work and a co-worker comes up, oh, you know what he's doing today? Yeah, I saw what he's doing today. You know what? I just pray for him when I see that happens. Come home from work and your wife's how was work instead of picking on how bad the coworker was. You know what? We just really need to keep him in prayer. Those people that you're really close to, friends and family members that you can't stand, and as we get closer to the holiday season, you have to be around them. Bless them. That, see, that is so foreign to our mindset. Because we live in this society where we feel like we have the freedom to say whatever we want, whenever we want, we however we want. And amen that we do, but we never have the freedom to speak evil of people. And this is quite the lesson here for Paul to be smacked across the face, unlawfully so. And he basically says, hypocrite. And they say, you're talking to the high priest. And Paul quickly says, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Just think about that. Think about that, the words that come out of your mouth. When you speak ill of people, it's a window right into your soul. Just remember that. 
So, moving on, verse 6 of uh, Acts 23. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. We have to do a little bit of history lesson here. This idea of Pharisees and Sadducees, and if you've been coming out here for a while, you've heard me mention this before, so just just bear with me here just to make sure we're on the same page. Pharisees and Sadducees, these were the two big groups back during Jesus' time, during the time of the book of Acts. Pharisees were the largest of the group, larger group, and these were mostly lay people, and they focused on all of the Old Testament. So they believed in all the Old Testament. So they believed in angels and ministering spirits, they believed in resurrection, they believed in the afterlife, and this was a large group. The Sadducees were a much smaller group numerically, but they're the ones that held all the power. So they're the ones that were the majority of the Sanhedrin. So this was the priesthood where the Sadducees, they only believed in the law of Moses. So therefore, they did not believe in any resurrection or they did not believe in any angels or anything spiritual. Pharisees, larger, all Old Testament, but didn't have the power. Sadducees were the priesthood had the power, smaller, did not believe in any resurrection. And you've heard us say this before, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so therefore they're Sadducee. That's how you remember that. They're Sadducee because they don't believe in the resurrection. So Paul realizes what's going on, and he says, Hey, Pharisees, I'm being judged about the resurrection. So all of a sudden now, it's not about Paul. It's about resurrection versus no resurrection. And if you're keeping track, this is now riot number three that Paul has caused. And this is how it ends. Verse 10, soldiers have to come save Paul one more time. Paul's been in Jerusalem and he's caused a riot at the temple the first time. Then he gave a message and caused a riot the second time. Next day he goes to Sanhedrin and basically says what? Um, Don't hit me, followed by sorry, followed by I'm being judged for the resurrection, and he calls this a third riot. So he's in Jerusalem and he has three riots under his belt and no fruit in any way whatsoever. Takes us to verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Isn't it amazing how the Lord knows exactly when to show up in your darkest time? In your darkest time. When does he show up? Verse 11, at night. It's very symbolic, at night. Can you go with me real quick to Psalm 18? Psalm 18. Jesus doesn't just show up It says he shows up and he stands by him at night. Psalm 18, please. Night, symbolic, darkness, shows the difficult, tough times in life. Some of you came into this building here today and you're at night. Even though it's 11 o'clock in the morning and it's bright out, you're in the darkness right now. You're at night. It is a tough time. You're struggling physically. You're struggling emotionally. You're struggling spiritually. It is a dark time in your life. What does it say about that? Psalm 18, verse 28. For you will light my lamp. 
Verse 28, you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. That's a great passage. You came in darkness. The Lord flips the light on, verse 28. Now you can run against the army, fight him, verse 29. You can leap over those walls in your life that are holding you back, verse 29. And verse 30, he's a shield to you. He comes to you in the darkness and says, I'll give you strength, I'll give you the ability, I'll protect you, and the word of the Lord is proven and he'll get you through it. So Paul, in the darkness of night, when he needed something more than any other time, that's exactly when the Lord appears to him. Not after the first riot, not after the second riot, but after the third riot. So some of you right now are having a rough time. And you're saying, okay, James, uh, the whole Lord thing isn't appearing to me right now. (laughs) I'm not really feeling this shield and strength. Well, maybe he won't come until the second or third riot. See, maybe sometimes he says, I'm just going to wait to the dark time. I've noticed that sometimes in my walk with the Lord that I have this bad day... And so I go home, I spend that time in prayer, I spend that time in the Word, and I just expect this, you know, Shekinah glory moment, you know, God to appear and everything to be amazing, and it doesn't happen. I mean, the Lord sustains me and gets me through. And then I have another bad moment, a bad day, and it's like, okay, Lord, where are you? Maybe it's that third time. He knows it. I've come to the conclusion spiritually that sometimes when I'm dangling at the end of my rope, and I'm like, Lord, save me, the Lord says, you know what, you can hang on for a little while longer. He trusts I have to trust that. I have to trust that. So he finally shows up, verse 11. What does he say? Hey, I'm going to get you out? No, he says, be of good cheer, Paul. For you have testified to me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at at Rome. Be of good cheer. Some of your translations may say, take heart, take courage. This is Jesus' little catchphrase. He says this numerous times. He says it here in the book of Acts, and there's four other recorded instances of him saying, be of good cheer, or once again, depending on your translation, take heart, take courage. First time he said it, Matthew 9, verse 2, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. Think about that one. Be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. So when you're in the darkness of life, and your world is falling apart, physically, emotionally, spiritually, the first thing Jesus wants to say to you is your sins are forgiven. Well, that doesn't really help, does it? Actually, it does help because it gets your eternal perspective. Because you have your sins forgiven, which means no matter what happens to you on this earth, it does not compare to the blessing of eternity in heaven that's waiting for you. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. And so the first thing he tells us is, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. When you know that you're saved, everything else in this world starts to become really unimportant. Because I'm saved. I have eternity in heaven. My sins are forgiven. That's what gets me through. If you ever come to me and you're having a really bad day, a really bad day, and everything is falling apart, and you're upset at this, you're upset at that, you're upset at this, I will normally interrupt you and say, hey, are you born again? And you'll say, yeah. Then I'll say, you know what? Your sins are forgiven. Amen, right? Now, some of you hate to hear that. (laughs) But isn't that the truth? Got to keep your focus. Keep your eyes on the Savior, not the situation. Your sins are forgiven. Next one, Matthew 9, 22. Matthew 9, 22, he says, Be of good cheer, your faith has made you well. That was with the woman that got healed. Matthew 9, 22. Be of good cheer, your faith has made you well. So now that we understand our sins are forgiven, the next thing is your faith is what's going to sustain you and get you through these trials and tribulations. 
Your faith is. Your faith is going to remind you, God has gotten me through the past, he'll get me through this. Your faith is going to remind you that I have a home in heaven. Your faith is going to remind you that no matter what happens on this earth, God will see me through. Your faith will remind you, not to quote Annie, but the sun will come up tomorrow. It will. Your faith has made you well. Now, I have to go back to this point that we've shared before. I got the finance background, you know that. And so when I was in college, I had to take macroeconomics and microeconomics. You remember the difference. Macroeconomics is economics on the big scale. Microeconomics is economics on the small scale. Point is this. Most of you here today have what I call macro faith. You've got big faith. You believe God created the heavens and the earth. You believe in Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. You believe in the eternity of heaven. You believe in the infallibility of God's word. But your micro faith really stinks. You're all worked up about tomorrow. And so what happens is when you come to me and you tell me about tomorrow, and I interrupt you and say, don't you believe that God created the heavens and the earth? Oh, I believe God created the heavens and the earth. Do you believe in Jesus down the cross for your sins? Oh, pastor, I believe it. But pastor, tomorrow it's all going to fall apart. You have no micro faith. You got the big picture. You see it. You get it. But yet that big picture doesn't correlate to the day-to-day life that you just have to go through. I mean, how many times have you heard us say this? If he can create the world in six days, can't he handle what's going to happen tomorrow? And I'm just telling you, you've got the macro faith. Now get the micro faith. The day-to-day routine he will help you through, just like he can handle all the big picture stuff. So be of good cheer. Take heart. Take courage. Your faith has made you well. So let's keep building on this. Your sins are forgiven. That's the most important thing. Your faith will help you get through the day. Now here's our third time he said it. Matthew 14, verse 27. Matthew 14, verse 27. This is where the disciples were in the boat, and the storm was hitting them, and they were all going to die. Jesus walks across the water, says, It is I. Be of good cheer. Do not be afraid. Jesus is telling you, take courage, take heart when the storms of life hit you. Be of good cheer. Don't be afraid. Be afraid. Jesus is with you. Do you know how difficult that is when the storm is hitting you to believe that? Because when the storm hits you, the Bible says we just want to focus on the wind and the waves and the water. Some of you came in and you're in a storm right now and you hear what I'm saying, but you don't hear what I'm saying. Jesus is right there in the midst of the storm with you saying, be of good cheer. I'll help you through it. Now what happens is when the storms of life hit and somebody tells you be of good cheer... Sometimes that's the last thing you want to hear. Can you imagine being in a hospital bed and it doesn't look good? You're in awful pain and it looks like the end may be coming. It's sad, it's depressing, it's discouraging. Pastor James shows up. I walk into your room, I just smile and say, It is I! Do not be afraid. Be of good cheer. That wouldn't go over real well, would it? They're sinking in a boat... And the only thing Jesus can say, it is I, do not be afraid, be of good cheer. Why could Jesus say that? Because he basically needed to say, guys, get your eyes off the storm and focus on me. Same thing still applies to us today. I don't know what you're facing. Get your eyes off the storm and focus on Jesus. And what happens is we feel the storm in our life right now is so big, so overwhelming, that you can't see Jesus. You've got to look for him. It is I. Do not be afraid. Be of good cheer. In the middle of the storm, that's what he wants to tell you. Last one I want you to turn with me to. Can you go to John 16? Here's the last time that Jesus says, be of good cheer, take courage, take heart. John 16, 33. 
This is a good refrigerator verse. John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Boy, there's so much in that passage. Verse 33. First one is don't ignore the fact that Jesus wants to speak to you. Number two, in me, only in him, only in him. You will not find peace in anything else. Only in him, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. It is a good day today. Doesn't mean tomorrow will be a good day. You wake up tomorrow and it's a good morning. Doesn't mean it will be a good afternoon. Let's just be pessimistic. You have a good morning and a good afternoon. Doesn't mean you're going to have a good evening. You will have tribulation. So if you know you will have tribulation, if you know you will have problems... Physical, emotionally, or spiritually, I love you, but why are you surprised when it happens? You know it's going to happen. You know it. You will have the health diagnosis that doesn't seem fair. You'll have the day at work, which doesn't seem fair. You'll have the flat tire at the wrong time. You'll have the car breakdown at the wrong time. You'll be involved in the accident that's not your fault. You will have tribulation. But Jesus says, I still want to give you peace. We're halfway through October. We're getting into the fall season, winter season, which means over the next, what, uh, four or five months, there's going to be colds and congestions and coughs. And I've come to the conclusion with us, five boys, family of seven, when one kid gets it, what's going to happen? It's going to have to go to the next kid. I know what's going to happen. And when it gets to the next kid, what's going to happen? It has to go to the next kid. And guess what happens when it gets through three kids? It's going to go to the fourth kid. And you're right. I'm just going to keep on going through even though you know where I'm going. After four kids, it's going to go to the fifth kid. After five kids, guess what's going to happen? Now Dawn's going to get it. And after six, it's going to get to me. And this can take about two weeks. So after all seven of us have it, two weeks later, it's back to the first kid. And guess what happened after the first kid? I'm going to keep going. You know it. It's going to go to the second kid. Then it's going to go to the third kid. Okay, I'll stop right there. You get the point. I know it's coming. You know what's going to happen here in three months? It's going to snow. It's going to be ice. It's going to be cold. And God love you, you saints. One of you is going to walk into church on Sunday and be surprised that it snowed, that it's cold. You're going to be shocked. And I'm going to say, haven't you lived in Ohio for like five decades? Yeah. I just wasn't ready for it. What did you think was going to happen? You will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. He's trying to say, put this all together. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Be of good cheer, your faith has made you well. Be of good cheer, I'm here in the midst of the storm. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Now, I can't make you believe that. But that's the truth. And what happens is, it's in Him we have peace. It's Him that shows up in the dark times of life. It's Him that gets us through it. And I think what happens is, we've convinced ourselves that Christianity is freedom from trials and tribulations. And really, Christianity is freedom from hell. There's nothing about freedom from trials and tribulations. In fact, the Bible says we're going to go through the same trials and tribulations the world goes through. We're just going to have peace in the middle of the storm. So come back here to Paul now. Paul, 
three riots into his trip in Jerusalem, Jesus shows up at night, be of good cheer. And look what he says. For you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you also bear witness in Rome. Testified. You've given testimony. You've given witness for me. If I was in Paul's position, I would say, testimony? Three riots in, no fruit. What good have I done? Have you ever had those moments spiritually where it's like, what, what good have I done? Every now and then I have those moments. I'll, I'll finish a lesson on Sunday or on Wednesday. I'm on my drive home. And I'm like, oh, man, there's nothing. No fruit came out of that. I, you know, I missed this point, missed this. And so you go home and you kick yourself, and that's the message a couple of days later. Someone comes up and says, that's exactly what I needed to hear. The fruit's not about us. It's about the Lord. And so if you go to the tree and there's no fruit on the tree, we become discouraged. Maybe it's just your time to water the tree. Maybe it's just your time to fertilize the tree. Paul, as far as we can tell, had no fruit after two messages, three riots, and God is basically saying in verse 11, you're doing good. Hang in there. Hang in there. Keep testifying me. You're doing exactly what I want you to do. Okay, Lord. Because it's not about me. It's about him. So maybe you came in here this morning and you're at a really dark time. God wants to flip the light on. He's your shield. He's protector. Protect you. And he wants to help you jump over those walls in life. Maybe you came in here and it's a really dark time and you are just, there's no joy. There's no peace. Be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. Be of good cheer, your faith has made you well. Be of good cheer, Jesus is in the midst of the storm with you. And be of good cheer, through Christ, he's overcome the world. Maybe lastly, you've come in and it's just really dry. And you're like, Lord, what am I even doing? The Lord just wants to pat you on the back and say, you're testifying to me, hang in there, keep moving forward. The fruit will come in time. We can really learn a lot from Paul. We can really learn how to handle the struggles of life, the difficulties of life, and the problems of life. Be of good cheer. Take heart. Take courage. God's with you. Marvin, if we can come forward here for the final song. Let's pray.